This episode of The Curbsiders is available for CME and mock credit through our partnership with the American College of Physicians. ACP members can go to acponline.org forward slash curbsiders and claim their free CME and mock credit. Thank you and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. Hi, Stuart. This is this is weird. I'm in the same room as you recording again, uh, which weird. hasn't happened for quite a while. Yeah, I, I'm a little shy. <laughs> and uh, with us, we have a, a new uh, producer, Emmy Okamoto. Hello, Curbsiders. Thank you, Emmy, for producing this episode. Actually, before Stuart uh, berates the audience, why don't you tell why don't you tell them what this episode is going to be about? Yeah, today we're discussing anaphylaxis. Um, so don't be scared, but be ready to treat with epinephrine. We'll be going over the treatment, um, how to recognize and diagnose it, and also some other tips on lab tests you can order and how to counsel a patient about using epinephrine. Yeah, it's it's insanely practical. Uh, but before we get to that, Stuart, why don't you uh, why don't you tell the audience? Uh, in case you didn't know, since we went in a, in a completely backwards way, this is the <laughs> Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast, where normally we have, and again today we have expert guests who uh, present clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. We uh, present those to you, talk to them about a few life changing things and books and movies and events and things like that. So. Uh, it's pretty quick this time, so if you want to skip five minutes, you can, but then Paul will hunt you down and slash your tires. <laughs> That's true. Our guest on today's episode, uh, in the midst of the ACP conference, actually, we just attended her talk and then immediately afterwards uh, bombarded her with an interview. Our guest t- today is Dr. Ola Jamoke Fadugba. And she goes by Jumi for this episode. She is an assistant clinical professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, as well as the fellowship director for the allergy and immunology training program at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, she did a wonderful job both giving her talk at ACP today and also on this episode, just giving us a lot of very high yield, usable stuff. This is a topic that I've never felt comfortable with. So I'm really excited for you all to hear it. Jumi, so we're just going to start off, and we're going to ask you a very easy question. Can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself and definitely include something that you do outside the world of medicine? I am a, uh, a, a wife and a mother of two children. I have a four-and-a-half-year-old son and a 18-month-old girl who definitely keep me busy, but I do sort of try and um, keep up with my... Um, loves of, of music and, and reading novels. And when I can, I kind of tell people when they ask me where I'm from that I'm really from everywhere and nowhere at the same time because I really have grown up all over. Um, so yeah. Well, okay. We usually, I, I know I said we weren't going to get this, but can you just give us like maybe a quick book recommendation? What's something good <laughs> that either you love all mm. the, t- like from a long term or just something recent that comes to mind? 
<sighs> so let's see. Um, trying to think. Oh, there's so many. How about a movie? How about movies? Are- I'm not so good with. I can oh, okay. do book. I can what, do book. What book are I, you reading now? Oh gosh. That? So I'm reading a kind of like a light novel called Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Okay. It is by someone called I think Gail Honeyman. It's a British set in set in in England and but it's really funny book and the actual first the 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 person who's speaking the uh in first person I think is a stalker <laughs> and and as I'm reading I'm realizing that she <laughs> It's a very quirky book, but I but it's it's good it's a good read. But I read all kinds of genres and and oftentimes mystery. So this is a bit of a deviation. It was based on a book recommendation okay. on Reese's Reese Witherspoon's book club. <laughs> I'm sure Stuart's going to so, tell us how much yes, how uh, much does that cost, Stuart, and eight, how many copies? Eight, 1820 on Amazon, and I have no clue how many copies <laughs> are left. That's a hardback. <laughs> okay, so, but if yeah, you just want hardback. You never want paperback anymore. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> or you can go to Kindle, right? <laughs> And Jumi, the next question we have to ask you, since we know that you're involved in fellowship training, what is what is your favorite bit of advice that you might give to fellows or trainees? Uh, so, you know, in fellowship, you know, it's sort of like the last leg of the race. And so, and it's very short, given the fact that afterwards you're on your own and you're now the expert. So in the two years that they're doing their fellowship, um, our fellowship is two years, I tell them, look, you know, this is the time when you get to uh, ask questions and never feel like you're dumb because you have a small amount of time to get it all, to get as much of it in as possible. I tell them as well to sort of learn how to uh, figure out what it is that they want um, in their career so that when they start, they kind of have uh, feel like they have some sort of a, a authority or power to kind of say yes to some things and say no to some things. It takes a lot of practice. So I get them to start practicing while they're in fellowship. I feel like saying no is the, the harder part to teach, right? <laughs> it is. It is very difficult. <laughs> I guess I used to being told what to do and things right. like that. So oftentimes I'll sort of forward opportunities to them left, right, and center. And, you know, they can say, no, I'm not interested in this particular one, but I really want to do this particular one. And so I think that's a great way. It kind of helps them to figure out what it is they are interested in and what they're not as well. So, yeah. That's good advice. We've talked about this sort of thing on the show before, and we have some probably future episodes talking about more like that transition when you're moving into your career, like how do you set up your job and figure out what you want to do? It's a really, it's one of my favorite topics to talk about, but we have limited time with you. So we're going to go into the anaphylaxis and, uh, and we're going to very briefly touch on angioedema, but mostly this is going to be about anaphylaxis. Stuart, did you want to read the case? I was going to let Emmy read it. Great. So we have Miss Willow Pollen. She's a healthy 22-year-old female with no past allergies who presents to the emergency room with after a family picnic where she ate multiple foods, fell itching around her mouth, and after five minutes started profusely vomiting. She arrives to the hospital 15 minutes later, her vitals of a blood pressure of 100 over 60, heart rate 95, afebrile with a normal oxygen saturation. Her exam is notable for diffuse abdominal discomfort, and she is vomiting bile. Her skin and lung exams are normal. 
Okay, so we know this is going to be anaphylaxis, but I guess the question is, based on the case we gave you, um, we know it's anaphylaxis just because we're doing a talk on anaphylaxis, but in real world, like, how do you actually recognize anaphylaxis and diagnosis? So, you know, a couple of important points. So her symptoms, right? Two of them. She has mucocutaneous symptoms. She has itchy mouth. So we have sort of one point for like the skin slash uh, mucosa. And then two, she has GI symptoms. She has profuse vomiting and abdominal discomfort. So she meets one of the, one of the diagnostic pathways or criteria that is put forth by the NA, um, NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and um, Immune Deficiency and the Food Allergy and anaphylaxis, anaphylaxis Network. So she meets that criteria. And then she had a a possible exposure. She was eating at a picnic. Mm-hmm. So those three things, the two symptoms and the exposure together, um, really, if you just follow the quote unquote book, will sort of qualify as anaphylaxis, even if you're not used to seeing anaphylaxis. The the pathophysiology of this, I think it's interesting to talk about. In your in your talk today, you were you were mentioning that there's the IgE mediated and the non-IgE mediated, which used to be called the anaphylactoid reaction. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how they differ in pathophysiology or is that even important for us to yeah. know? That's a great question. Um, so <clears throat> IgE mediated anaphylaxis is what we classically think of when we think about an, an allergic reaction where someone um, is exposed to an allergen. Um, that's what we'd call an allergen like peanuts or even pollen. And that sort of binds to IgE molecules in the body. And someone who is susceptible, they make peanut-specific IgE that then binds to mast cells. And the next time they eat peanut, or maybe the hundredth time they eat peanut, that peanut then binds to the peanut-specific IgE that's already on the sensitized mast cell and causes the mast cell to be activated. It degranulates and releases histamine and other things that lead to allergic symptoms. So, you know, people who have not, there are sort of non-IgE or non-immunologic reactions that still involve mast cell activation, but doesn't involve IgE at all, where either that agent like vancomycin or opioids or radiocontrast media uh, trigger mast cells um, either directly binding to the mast cells or binding to other receptors on mast cells and causing it to to, to, to degranulate that way. Let's go, go. Sorry. I was going to say okay? one, one distinction Stuart's is that like... in a, with an allergic reaction, you need to have been sensitized first. So you, um, if, you, if you're having an IgE-mediated reaction, you cannot have an allergic reaction the first time you're exposed to that thing. Because remember, the pathway involves the initial exposure right. and sensitization is the subsequent exposures that really... So if somebody has an anaphylactic type of reaction the first time they're exposed to that agent, it's probably not IgE-mediated. It's like anaphylactic. It may be, be anaphylactoid. Right, because they didn't have time to make IGE yes, to have a Yes, they didn't have, have the opportunity to do that. Is yes. that differentiation, is there? Is that clinically Clinical, important right. at all? That's a very good question. And so um, oftentimes they will present similarly. So the end product is the same. Um, and they're treated similarly, although... We find clinically or practically that sort of anaphylactoid reactions tend to be more um, responsive to pre-medication um, and, and sort of preventing the 
symptom from pre-medication. We don't fully understand why that is. So we often pre-treat for contrast-mediated reactions. Sometimes we'll give Benadryl before opioids. We'll give Benadryl before vancomycin. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, sort of IgE-mediated reactions don't tend to respond to that type of pre-treatment regimen. And that's something we see, and it's not it's not foolproof. So you um, you can't always uh, prevent a an event with, an, with an, a non-IgE-mediated reaction. You can still have symptoms with contrast media despite mm-hmm. pre-treatment, but it just reduces the risk. Stuart, did you have something? Because I, I had a follow-up question as well. The, the follow-up question I had was pre-treatment with what? And she answered that question. I was going to ask about the vancomycin because I, I, I classically, I remember learning that it's not really a dangerous reaction. It's like a bothersome reaction. But if it's anaphylactoid, that some of those sound like so they can be quite that's severe. That's why we've gotten away from the word. One of the reasons we've gotten away from the word anaphylactoid doesn't have to be anaphylaxis. So that's tough. So what I mean by that is you're having symptoms um, related to mast cell degranulation. It may just be hives. It may be only hives or maybe hives and wheezing and GI symptoms sort of, but whatever end of the spectrum you're in, in terms of the reaction, it is not, it really should be called again, non-immunologic or non-IgE mediated. Does that make sense? So Mm -hmm. red man syndrome, you wouldn't necessarily, you wouldn't classify that as anaphylaxis, right? But it is non-IgE mediated. So that's why that's the more accurate term. The other might be a misnomer depending on the situation. Yeah. And then, like, if you're if you're talking the two anaphyla- um, the non IgE mediated ones we talked about, contrast induced, um, you know, non IgE mediated, those seem like some of them are really severe. And then with the vancomycin Redman syndrome, that seems uncomfortable but not dangerous. Yeah. Or am I misjudging? That's true. That's typically the case. Yes, okay. Redman syndrome is typically mild. You can, as you know, slow down the infusion. Um, sometimes that's adequate. Sometimes you need to slow down the infusion and pretreat with diphenhydramine. Um, but yes, typically that's much milder than what people experience with radio contrast media. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. I'm yeah. glad we hashed that out a little bit. Yeah. Is is there ever a role for an anaphylactoid reaction with epinephrine? That's, um, yes. Okay. All right. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) And and if you sort of just, again, go back to the way epinephrine works, it makes sense that it that it might help with that type of reaction. It's still sort of increasing cardiac contractility, increasing your blood pressure, just reversing the the sort of the the events that are occurring um, once the mast cell has been degranulated. Okay. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about, um, we gave you one phenotype of an anaphylactic reaction. You mentioned there's a couple types in your talk. So what are some common sort of presentations of anaphylaxis that we might look out for? Yeah. So there are three sort of diagnostic criteria or pathways or phenotypes that have been put forth um, by the NIAID and the Food Allergy and Anaphylaxis Network. Um, these were put forth to really help providers um, with their ability to diagnose anaphylaxis because it can be really tough. It can be confusing. Yeah. There, there is a there is a a, a big variation in the way that I could present. So this tries to capture those different ways that anaphylaxis can present. And so one of these sort of diagnostic criteria or uh, sort of phenotypes is um, a patient, um, the first one, a patient who has an acute onset of symptoms, typically within minutes to a few hours, that involves the skin and or muco- 
mucosa, so mucocutaneous symptoms. That is itching, flushing, hives, angioedema. Okay, so that's one. And either respiratory symptoms or reduced blood pressure and its associated and organ manifestations. And when I say respiratory compromise, I'm talking about dyspnea, wheezing, bronchospasm, stridor, hypoxemia. And when I say reduced blood pressure and, or, and organ manifestation, I'm talking about um, dizziness, lightheadedness, um, shock, hypotension. And that seems to be the one that's kind of the more classic, like their skin findings, maybe GI stuff, but then they have like the cardiovascular symptoms, the hypotension, is that? So I think that, you know, people used to sort of use the term um, anaphylaxis, the terms anaphylaxis and anaphylactic shock interchangeably. Um, really, anaph- shock in anaphylaxis is sort of an end manifestation. Okay. It is not necessary. And so in making the diagnosis, and I wouldn't even call it classic. Hopefully okay. we don't get to that point. Okay. And, and this is what, when people die from anaphylaxis, they usually die of shock. Yeah. And so it's really important to sort of, yes, that is one of the diagnostic criteria, but it is very much not necessary. So you're, you're saying it's classic, <laughs> if not recognized and treated, exactly. which is the whole yeah. point of us talking yes. to you. Yes. So hopefully we will have yes. less of that. If untreated, they will get shocked. <laughs> so treat. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, not everybody with anaphylaxis will proceed, I mean, um, will proceed, of course, to developing mm, shock. Right. And and, and the, the, the reason you're treating is not because you know they'll get shock if you don't. Many times they won't. They, they mm-hmm. will, your own sort of endogenous compensatory um, um, chemicals will kick in. Yeah. And a lot of times there will be self-resolution. And, uh, but you cannot predict the course. Yeah. And that is precisely why you use epinephrine early. Is there any age, like, is there an age predictor? Say someone with an intact immune system who has a robust response is more likely to get shock? Or do you see any association with that? There is, we think there is an age association, but it tends to be older people okay. who who succumb to anaphylaxis, okay. usually because they have comorbid disease like lung disease or airway disease or cardiovascular disease. And they're all on beta blockers. So. And they're on beta blockers. So, so, so they have all there. the things yeah. that <laughs> increase your risk. Exactly. And, um, you know, the anaphylactic event itself um, can have effects on the uh, on the cardiovascular system. So histamine um, can cause vasospasm um, of the coronary artery, and it can disrupt the arteriosclerotic plaques that are in mm. there. And so this is why people who have heart disease who are older and all of these things are a higher risk of, of having poor outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned one of the other ones, but I wouldn't classically like think about this. I would probably think this is like food poisoning. Someone eats and then they get some like mouth itching and they start profusely vomiting. Is that underrecognized? Or it is, I just... think, underrecognized. And so if you eat and you start vomiting profusely, maybe it is food poisoning. But if you are itching, that is the main distinction. And that is what clues you in to an allergic rather than a toxic um, event. And so um, that is, I think that's a really important distinction. And you wouldn't be able to make the distinction if there was no itching involved. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was news to me. And I think the third this the third type you mentioned was sort of like uh there there was a likely exposure or then there was one that was like someone ate a salad and there was like multiple different things. So let me go to the second yeah. sort of diagnostic 
criteria slash phenotype. So if somebody has two or more of the following, and I like to think of these uh, uh, things as organ systems. So one, skin or mucosa is one. So that's rash, hives, or angioedema of the lips. That's that's mucocutaneous. That's one system. Second system is respiratory. Third system is uh, is um, GI. GI. And fourth is the cardiovascular system. So if you have two or more of these systems involved and you have a likely allergen exposure, you may not know what it was, but it happened within five minutes of eating something, that would classify as anaphylaxis. Okay. And then the third is someone eats something or is exposed to something they have a known history of an allergic reaction to. All they need is one manifestation, and that is um, evidence of reduced blood pressure. They eat a cashew nut that they have had hives from before, and this time they eat it by mistake, and then they pass out. Okay. They don't have to have hives. Right. You're going to give them epinephrine because that's anaphylaxis. If they just had hives... Would you treat Great them? Great question. <laughs> so I, I was I was just going to say, uh, obviously you have to look at the correct cl- clinical context. Because if I walk through Macy's, smell some perfume, poop my pants and pass out, it's probably not an anaphylaxis, right? Although it would meet the criteria. That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I think you bring up a really good point, right? So clinical judgment is everything, right? right? The, the things aren't perfect. So um, so yeah, these are supposed to help guide us, but that, that um, you have to use a clinical judgment. So let's say someone has a history of hives with cashew nuts. They eat cashew nut and they just have hives again. Maybe it's just hives. You don't need to give them epinephrine. Um, If they have had an anaphylactic episode to cashew nuts before, a bad one, and then they eat cashew nuts the next time and they only have hives, you don't know for sure, but you would have a sort of, uh, they have a higher risk of developing anaphylaxis potentially, or at least you're more concerned about that. You don't necessarily need to wait for them to pass out. Okay. Okay. Uh, you might give them an EpiPen, or, yeah. especially with children. It's really important. So don't let them go into shock before you give it to yeah. them. Got it. Okay. <laughs> especially if they've not gone into shock before. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we we're kind of touching on this here. Can you just tell us, like, I know this was a question you got a lot after your talk today about sort of predicting the course and the biphasic reaction. Can, so can you tell us what we do know about that and how do yeah. you handle it practically? So I'll talk about predicting severity first, and then I'll go into predicting biphasic reactions. Perfect. So as far as severity of anaphylaxis, that's a clinical sort of um, determination, how severe something is. We don't have a great classification. It's, you know, if, it, if they passed out and they were hypotensive, that's severe. So, or if they had cardiac arrest. Yes, that's very severe. Okay. But anyway, there's no very good way of making that prediction. Um, if it were, it would be much more simple for us. But we know that older people, people with cardiovascular disease, someone who's on a beta blocker who has asthma, they may, they have a higher risk of having severe anaphylaxis. So there are certain comorbid conditions that do help us sort of risk stratify. But you can't necessarily make the, um, the prediction based on past events or past episodes. So um, in fact, um, a lot of the time patients who, who uh, the, the few patients who die from anaphylaxis and the case mortality rate uh, of anaphylaxis is, is 0.001%. So most people don't die. Oh, that's good. To thankfully know. <laughs> of anaphylaxis, right? So why am I talking about all this is because it's not predictable. You don't want anybody to die. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult to predict who is going to have a severe event 
Um, and, and so because of that, if you, if somebody meets the criteria, you want to treat them early. Now, as far as biphasic reactions, so there was a study that was done within the past five years that basically looked at over 4,000 patients with anaphylaxis and about 200, 200 of them developed a biphasic, um, event. So that's about one in 20, as I said, 5%. And with, in that study, the median time to onset of a biphasic reaction was 12 hours. Other studies have shown it to be around closer to eight hours. The range is one to 72 hours. And so it is it's very difficult um, really to predict who will develop one. But in this particular study of, of over 4,000 patients, they found that um, patients who initially presented with a low blood pressure with unknown trigger were more likely to have a biphasic um, reaction. So the next question people often ask is how long to monitor patients given yeah. that information. You know, um, the average that people recommend is about eight hours, right? Um, but if you look at this particular study that came out recently, they're saying the median time was 12 hours. And so um, it, you then have sort of have to weigh the risk with um, against practicality. And and there again, there's really no set number of hours to monitor someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, and and yeah. the range is zero point two to seventy two hours. Yeah, that yeah. is insane. Seventy two hours. Yeah. So I guess if it's so, like so, one would argue, could argue, yeah. that <laughs> maybe there's no point in monitoring at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to monitor so, you for the rest of your life. So right, exactly. And most people are not going to be kept in the emergency room for for yeah. three days. So, <laughs> but I'm thinking like cognitively impaired or you know yeah. socially disadvantaged yeah. doesn't really have access or ability to follow through versus like I don't know Stuart Stuart's reasonably capable yeah. of giving himself epinephrine yeah, <laughs> as he looks off at his point right yeah. like if Stuart has an epinephrine and knows how to use yeah. it and you can rely on him to use it if he has ep symptoms and you really want to educate patients when you discharge them yeah then and you're comfortable, then fine. And, and, and I will just as an example, in the allergy clinic, we get, see people with anaphylaxis sometimes because we give allergy shots every day. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And um, you guys are playing with fire. That's I mean, <laughs> that's our job. And so, you know, some people have episodes, we treat them with epi and, and we watch them for an hour and we send them home. And they almost always do just fine. Mm. And I might give them one or two doses of prednisone and they're okay. And so, you know, we talk about observation. It makes us feel better to some extent. And, and the, but the data is, is varied, right? You have some saying median of 12 hours, some saying 48 hours. And so some people will take the middle of that and monitor and, 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 and send them home. <laughs> so. so it sounds like expert opinion. Yeah, yeah. it very much is. <laughs> Physician it, it, gestalt. Uh, yeah, <laughs> consensus <laughs> guidelines. <laughs> okay, so yeah. we have maybe 10 minutes left. So I do want to ask you, how do you counsel a patient when you give them epinephrine? This is very practical to, to us and our audience. Like, how do you, what do you say to a patient when you're giving them epinephrine? How do they take mm -hmm. it? What are the instructions? Okay. So um, I don't give patients sort of the three diagnostic criteria. They're not going to look at that. So the way, the way I talk to them is I say, if you feel like you're going to die, you have an impending sense of doom, use your epinephrine. Number one, <laughs> that's actually a, a, a symptom sometimes in people who are going to have it. They, they actually have a tangible sort of okay. the sense of impending doom. Sure. Okay. And then I, um, I, I also tell them, okay, if you have um, sort of two parts that I use the two organ systems description, like let's say your skin is involved and your GI tract is involved, um, like you're having itching, you're having vomiting, use it. 
If you're having throat swelling and having trouble breathing, use it. And that's essentially, or if you can feel like you're going to pass out or you do pass out, use it. That's essentially covers everything. So that's the indication for epinephrine use. Then I have two or three epinephrine devices in my office, the different kinds that are out there on the market, and I show them how to use it. Okay. It takes me about three minutes. I tell them, you know, put it in your outer thigh, through your clothing. Um, you don't have to take off your pants or anything like that. And you put it in there, keep it in there. Um, some devices, you have to keep it in there for 10 seconds, some shorter. I just say 10 seconds because you can't go wrong okay, with that. I like it. And, um, and then if you have an event that requires you to use epinephrine, you should be taken to the emergency room for further um, monitoring. Okay. Perfect. Putting it through the clothes, it's a... I mean, so it's, it's very not, practical. It's not like Unless Pulp it's Fiction like, where you stab the person <laughs> in the heart. Don't put it through your the... wallet. So. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. Another thing I've had issues with my patients, uh, when they've had to use their EpiPen, they put it in their thumb. Ah, yeah. That's a good yeah. one. That's such a good one. And then their thumb is... And then, so, then what do they do then? So do they do it again? Do they inject themselves again or what? You know, so if you do something like that, <laughs> don't panic you should have two <laughs> and this actually is the second really important point okay um epinephrine should always be dispensed as a twin pack two of them and the reason you have two the actual reason you have two is because you may have symptoms that don't go away and you can use a second dose within five to 15 minutes of the first that's why you have two EpiPens, or if you have a biphasic episode yes. or something like that, or if you put the first one through your thumb, you have the second one to use. Excellent. Yeah. So they should both be on your body. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we used our part of our last 10 minutes for the thumb <laughs> question, Stuart. You're but welcome. I, I do think uh, you, you also had in your slides, uh, I always had trouble remembering this, but you, you mentioned if you're giving an IM, it's a one to 1,000, which is more concentrated than the intravenous is a one, <clears throat> sorry, a one to 10,000, yes. which, which makes sense. Exactly. And uh, the intravenous, of course, is going to require monitoring and you can exactly. put that on drip and everything. Exactly. That's right. Um, okay. If I don't ask you about this, we're going to get slaughtered by the audience. What about adjuvant medications, corticosteroids, antihistamines? I should give those first, right? And then maybe I can get not give epinephrine? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, not. audience. I know. So, no, if there's anything that I want people to take from this uh, sort of this uh, talk is that epinephrine is first line. It can't, should not be replaced by antihistamines or corticosteroids. In practice, these are the, the antihistamines and corticosteroids are most commonly administered, even when someone has a, a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Um, there are various reasons why people don't give epinephrine. Um, there's sort of people are sort of trigger shy, um, for various reasons, but it's really important to, you know, from pa- <laughs> Stewart's suggesting that it's because they injected themselves. <laughs> <in> their- <laughs> so, you know, the patients, EMS, emergency room physicians, um, um, and internists, everybody. So, you know, epinephrine is really the only drug that can do what it does. It has so many beneficial actions. It reverses, um, it sort of stops mast cells from releasing more histamines. That's a big one. It um, increases blood pressure. It promotes uh, bronchodilation, reduces mucosal edema. So it has all of these beneficial effects. 
Um, and, and histamines really only act on histamine. And histamine uh, only does a few things in anaphylaxis. Right. And corticosteroids, and, and the thing, both antihistamines and corticosteroids take too long yeah. to, to take effect. And that's actually a very important point. Um, epinephrine acts within seconds. And these other things take 30 minutes or long, in the case of corticosteroids, some hours. And so when someone dies from anaphylaxis, it usually occurs very quickly mm-hmm. um, for iatrogenic causes within typically uh, five minutes, like, uh, I don't know, during anesthesia. anesthesia or if you get a bee sting within 15 minutes, um, one study showed food within 30 minutes. So, you know, you really need something that will act quickly and will act broadly. Um, yeah. And there, sorry, I was going to say one more thing about yeah, corticosteroids. Yeah. There, there have been two sort of large systematic reviews on the question on the role of corticosteroids in anaphylaxis. The, um, the conclusion is that there is no, uh, good role, uh, uh, for corticosteroids in anaphylaxis. Although so you have to have the guts to, to do a, a randomized controlled trial with no steroids. Yeah. And, and, the, and that's precisely, the point there are no randomized control trials there probably won't be there will never be right so kind of reading in between the lines prioritize epinephrine people will probably still continue to give antihistamines and steroids because it's fine. sort of like it's, it's adjunctive therapy mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt and i mean antihistamines i mean they have their role right so they reduce itching and hives they make a patient more comfortable um they just if the patient is having an anaphylactic episode they won't for example relieve bronchospasm or increase the blood pressure and all of these things. Yeah. And just for clarity, when you say antihistamines, do you mean both H1 and H2? Mainly H1 blockers. H2 blockers do have some role, but not as much as H1 blockers. Okay, so I know we only have time. Uh, we we just powwowed real quick for the audience. They're not going to hear that. But uh, you you told us you had two things. You wanted to briefly mention tryptase and you wanted to address the contraindications thing for epi one more time. Yeah. So I'll give you however much time you need. Sure. <clears throat> so firstly, um, you know, epinephrine, um, there, there is no absolute contraindication to giving epinephrine. Um, if the patient is elderly, they have hypertension, they have cardiovascular disease, you can still give epinephrine. Yes, we know epinephrine increases, can increase blood pressure, can increase cardiac contractility, causes vasoconstriction, and all of these things. And there is some risk, potentially. Um, however, it is really the only thing that can save someone's life if they're having an anaphylactic Event. In fact, it is these same patients, patients who have hypertension, cardiovascular disease, who are older, who are at higher risk of dying from anaphylaxis. And so overall, the benefit really does outweigh the risk. Excellent. Um, and then the. And what if we're uncertain about the diagnosis? What about this tryptase yeah. thing? Yes. Okay. So this is really, really important. Um, so tryptase is an enzyme that's released by mast cells. It is quite specific for mast cells. And when someone has um, an anaphylactic episode, um, mast cells are degranulated, they release tryptase, and the levels increase in the blood. Um, so you can measure tryptase in the blood. And a level above approximately 11 micrograms per liter it may be supportive of a diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Now, tryptase levels rise pretty quickly after symptom onset. 
They peak around 90 minutes and they're usually back down to normal within five to eight hours. So the best time to get a trip taste level is within one to three hours of symptom onset. That time frame is really important. So if somebody is in the clinic or in the emergency room or urgent care center or in the OR, one you want one wants to get that trip taste. I'm thinking back to times I was called to the PACU for a hypotension patient after surgery and I might have missed anaphylaxis. I you know, we we are trying to spread the gospel at our hospital at Penn, you know, a, a great time is during anesthesia. Someone has perioperative hypotension or bronchospasm and um you know, you don't know if it's the anesthetic or if it's an allergic reaction to something. And so getting a trip taste during that acute event can be very helpful. And if yeah. it's anaphylaxis, sometimes it'll be up in the hundreds. And that can be very, very supportive. It's hard to tell otherwise mm-hmm. um, in that particular type of setting. I will say that a trip taste is not always elevated during anaphylaxis. So if somebody has a normal trip taste, it does not rule out anaphylaxis. And so the clinical scenario is really important. It's more likely to be high if it was a really severe episode and they were hypotensive or if it was from a medication or from a bee sting. But um, those are sort of the pearls that people should take away. I love it. Well, I can't thank you enough. I know, unfortunately, you have to run. And uh, maybe we'll have to do some more allergy immunology topics. It's a big hole in our show. Like we, this is, we've done one other on food allergies, but uh, it was very well received. And I imagine this one will be too. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been, this is like a gospel I love to preach. So, (laughs) so it's been great to be with you guys. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. You will be preaching this to lots and lots of people. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. Coming bringing straight. You- Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> you have it in the script. <laughs> Go ahead, Stuart. All right. Coming straight from ACP Conference in Philadelphia, room number 114. <laughs> 112. If anyone wants to come find us. Oh, is it? We were there a month ago at the time, by the time this airs. Anyway, uh, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Delicious. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast or sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. That's right. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback, Paul. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact Matt directly at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this show, Emmy Okamoto. And whoever ends up helping out with this episode. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chewy Manchu on Facebook. Until next time, I just had a drink of water. I'm nauseous and dyspneic, so I probably have anaphylaxis. This is Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. Thank you and have a great day. With Epi. With Epi. Known patients to abuse epinephrine, like they're like, like I like the rush, and so. They- oh my gosh! <laughs> no. What a dark thought, Stuart. <laughs> well, no, I'm just. Maybe I should have recorded that. That response. it's recorded. That, that- no, it is.